We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Ten, because that nine, ignition will serve to organize and measure the six, best five, of our energies four, and skills. Three, because that two, challenge is one, one that we're willing to accept. Zero. All engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. So welcome to the seventh episode of our podcast. Um, we just recorded our last uh, podcast episode two weeks ago, and we really want to keep up this frequency during the next few months because there are so many really interesting players within the new space industry and in the space industry in general. Thanks. Thanks a lot here for Nina and the entire organization of all these podcasts into Jiva for cutting them. Last time we had uh, John Tucker from New Space Hub who keeps track of all the new space companies and news projects in the industry. Today we are speaking to one of the most influential organizations within the space industry. And we have two representatives from the Planetary Society. Yeah, today very, it's very the very first that. time that we have two guests on the New Space Vision podcast and I'm, I'm really so excited. Um, it's actually Matt Kaplan, who is the host of the Planetary Radio. And we have Bruce Betts, who's an independent book author, chief scientist, and also the project manager, the program manager of the Project Lightsail. Super excited. So um, we're going to start with you, Matt. So you're working at the Planetary Society since 1999. Um, since 2002, you're hosting and producing the Planetary Radio, um, which is so cool that actually 120 public radio stations uh, stations throughout North America air the program, and it's downloaded 50,000 times each month, right? Uh, more than that, actually. I think we we are at about uh, 150,000, 175,000 per month uh, wow. for the podcast. So, um, yeah, it's uh, uh, we're wow. very proud of what uh, we've been able to achieve with that show, and and it's been great fun for the last uh, 17 and a half years. And I'll mention that Bruce is the only other person who has been heard on every one of those episodes. Uh, there are <laughs> around 900 episodes now. Nice. Uh, and uh, so you have interviewed uh, many, really many, many top-notch guests throughout the year, such as Buzz Aldrin, Elon Musk, Robert Sabrin, the founder of the Mars Society, Larry Page, the co-founder of Google. Um, so uh, thank you very much again for taking the time with us today. And I'm going to think we have a lot of interesting questions for you. So. The first one, Matt, um, we are always interested in the personal story. So can you tell us a bit how and why you joined the Planetary Society back in 1999? I was actually a member a little bit before that, and I was a member of another organization, the National Space Society, for a while, even before I joined the Planetary Society. But, um, I mean, I've been a space fan literally for as long as I can remember. Um, I'm old enough that I can remember the Mercury program uh, in the early 1960s and uh, running in to watch a launch of, uh, of an Atlas rocket with John Glenn or one of the other uh, seven first astronauts on it. Uh, and uh, the, I, my interest has never, you know, waned. Um, I knew about the Planetary Society largely because of uh, one of our three co-founders, Carl Sagan, was a big fan of his. Joined the society, became a volunteer for a short time, a very short time, because then I was uh, offered basically a, a part-time job, even while I was still working for a university uh, in Southern California. And I, I kept working there for many years. Uh, finally, went full-time at the society about six years ago now, something like six or seven years ago. Uh, and uh, I, I got to tell you, I feel like 
uh, one of the luckiest space fans in the world. The only we, the only thing that could make me even happier is if I got a ride up there into uh, low Earth orbit someday. But uh, I, I really think that I'm getting to do the next best thing, getting to talk to, you know, the guests that you've just mentioned and hundreds of others, and uh, working with uh, my my terrific colleagues like Bruce. That's really really cool, and it's it's really amazing how how you also have formed really just the public impression of of, of the space industry. And also, of course, we here in Europe, really, and Daniel and I, we are both also supporters of the Planetary Society, and it's really cool that we always keep updated via via this way of what's up and and new. Um, but speaking as one of the founders of New Space Vision, so a platform to promote new space startups and their interesting hardware applications. What, in your opinion, or how was it possible for the Planetary Society to really grow? Uh, to the size it is today and really to just the, the also impact. Well, I'll take a stab at that, on, but um, I'm, I'm mostly speaking for myself. I'm not even, I'm just the radio and podcast guy. Bruce is a member of management, <laughs> so he may be able to speak more officially. But, you know, I think when you look back to how the Planetary Society originated when our, our three founders, uh, Lou Friedman, Bruce Murray, and Carl Sagan, were looking at a, a difficult time in funding for uh, space exploration, particularly planetary science. And uh, they said, we know the public loves this. We need to put the word out about how we need the support of the public. We need to let the public know about the great successes that are in store. Um, and so they founded the Planetary Society. And, of course, Carl Sagan was a tremendous spokesperson for the society, uh, as now Bill Nye, our CEO, Bill Nye the science guy is. Um, but we have, uh, you know, a number of spokespeople now who do that for us. Um, and I think we tapped into something that, um, uh, that, that really did resonate with, uh, the feelings of not just Americans, but people around the world, because the Planetary Society is an international organization. As you guys may know, I mean, apparently you're two of them. We have a lot of members in Germany and across Europe, but really everywhere you look around the world, uh, 30% Roughly 30% of the planetary radio audience is outside the United States. And we're very proud of that. And it's something we want to continue. And we think it's because everybody feels this drive to explore, to, uh, uh, push out into, you know, the final frontier, if you will. Uh, and that we help to channel that as do, you know, many other organizations. Uh, and hopefully you guys will be adding to that as well. Yeah, it's, it's really great. And I mean, uh, if you look into the past decades, I think there were um, a lot of decisions made uh, by governments where the planetary society may have um, had an impact. Could you name a few? So what do you think was actually the biggest impact the planetary society could have on really the space program, the United States? Oh, we've, we've had a huge impact and, and we continue to, I mean, the, the little webcast that I just finished, part of our Planetary Radio Live series, was with our chief advocate, uh, Casey Dreyer. And he's really the expert at this. Uh, I could name several, but I'm, I'm going to turn it to, to Bruce. Bruce, do you have particular things in mind that, you know, you think we've been able to influence uh, very positively? Sure. So, I mean, the Planetary Society is, to back up a second, uh, is a <clears throat> international nonprofit, and we do different things. And one of those things is political advocacy. We also do things like Matt and the great radio show and our communications group who does web and social media. We do science technology projects. We'll talk about our biggest one later in the show. Uh, and then we have the political advocacy side of things. And so, for example, if you go back, back in time, uh, the, 
uh, we did several pushes with the public for what became the New Horizons mission to Pluto as it was teetering on the brink of cancellation. Uh, and more recently have pushed for a number of things uh, tied to our core enterprises, which are search for life, planetary defense, defending the Earth from asteroids, and planetary exploration. And so some of the things we've been pushing on is getting a, in planetary defense, uh, it's critical to get a space telescope, near-infrared space telescope, thermal infrared, to help us find more of the asteroids that are out there and determine what's a threat. That's something we've been pushing on for a few years, and now it's working its way into the budget, and now we're pushing to try to make sure it doesn't leave the budget. Uh, also pushed heavily for what became Europa Clipper, a uh, mission to Jupiter's moon Europa, uh, and uh, also have been pushing and continue to push for sample return from Mars, and that's in the plan now, although the details are still Still, we're getting worked out, so we keep pushing for it. Different departments of the uh, planetary society, really ranging from your own scientific projects, which you execute yourself, uh, to the projects which you promote, um, such as the planetary defense, and and then really the projects which uh, which also where you try to influence um, public decision uh, decision makers. Maybe you can talk a little bit about like the, the your own. Science projects and your own yeah, projects where you really are involved in the execution of a project, which are not the light cell project, which we're going to talk about in a second. What other projects do you have? You definitely sure. want to roost uh, for that one too. <laughs> well, I was just going to talk over you, Matt. Stay out of it. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Same as uh, always. <laughs> so we've got a number of science technology projects over the last few years. The, by far the largest is LightSail that we'll talk about. Uh, but we've also participated in a wide range of things ranging from uh, planetary defense uh, projects. We have a grant program that's been going for more than 20 years where we fund uh, really advanced amateur astronomers around the world and uh, give out funding roughly every two years to upgrade their telescopes to do asteroid detection, but also follow-up and characterization. That's called the Gene Shoemaker Near-Earth Grant Program. We're very proud of that. Uh, and then we've done a number of projects in recent years on exoplanet hunting. Right now, we're just in the process. We've just got a new one with uh, Deborah Fisher, who's a professor at Yale University and is collaborating with Joe Lama at... Uh, at Lowell Observatory, and uh, they are trying to find a hundred Earth-sized planets near the uh, near our solar system, and that's obviously a big goal. But they're working on it, and they needed some funding to get a high-tech piece of hardware to fit into their system. And their whole system has evolved from seed funding we've provided them over the prior years. Uh, we've flown things on spacecraft, so we flew the first privately funded uh, experiment on a spacecraft, which was a Mars microphone on Mars Polar Lander, which unfortunately failed the lander, not the microphone. Absolutely. And uh, and then we've also flown uh, public interest things. So we had a partnership with the, with the Lego group and did a 
DVD, silica glass DVD to Mars on the Mars Exploration Rovers, and another one on Phoenix that went to the surface of Mars carrying hundreds of thousands of names of people who wanted to go to Mars, and then educational content of various kinds. Uh, we also tried to fly a uh, living interplanetary flight experiment where testing microorganism survival in deep space. That was on the Russian uh, Phobos sample return mission in 2011 that failed. So, uh, <laughs> so yeah, we can see a pattern there, right? We can see a pattern there. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, you're yeah, breaking what, out of the pattern. Yeah. So, um, what I think is really interesting is that, um, in the past, of course, you started with education, which we also think is a very, very important uh, thing uh, for, for the space industry. And then at some point in time, uh, the Planetary Society also started to, um, to do those mis missions you just mentioned. Uh, why did that happen, actually? It's not really uh, common. Uh, what we try to do is involve the public with space exploration and connect them to the actual process. And so part of that is through things like planetary radio, of talking to the people involved. Uh, but part of it is trying to give people an opportunity to actually support and therefore be involved with actually doing stuff in space. And so that's how our science and technology program evolved. And that actually started uh, right at the beginning of the Planetary Society. There were some small science and technology grants given and then just expanded since then. And we've got involved with trying to fly on spacecraft since we do planetary exploration, and we've done both uh, attempts at science, but then things particularly that we think will uh, excite and engage the public with space exploration. Yeah, so so these are a lot of projects, and maybe one general question, which, like, how do you fund, like, how does the, because we all know space is, at least from our perspective, probably always underfunded, no matter how high the budget is for NASA or ESA, always underfunded this from our experience uh, like yeah point of view but how is the planetary society funded like what are ways also maybe individuals can support the planetary society and and their work well thanks for asking members 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 are roughly 50,000 members uh have always been key to uh enabling us to accomplish what we accomplish uh, we do have some other donors uh small and large uh, who uh, sometimes uh, just love our mission overall and sometimes uh, jump in to fund specific areas of our mission, uh, specific projects, which Bruce can talk more about. But uh, we are totally in debt, at least uh, in, in the emotional sense, <laughs> to our members uh, because uh, they make it happen. Uh, you know, we're not NASA funded uh, or funded by corporations. Um, and we really are a grassroots organization. And you also have great merchandise on the website. Uh, Sven and I just, uh, <laughs> we're going to share the shipping from the U.S. to Germany. So also to the listeners, really check the uh, online shop of the Planetary Society. It's really, really cool. I every Everywhere where I live or where I'm in the office, there's space stuff and you can get a lot um, there. But um, so now what, what I'm also interested in is to get your perspective on how the new space age um, uh, changed also the way you are doing missions, um, and how do you see the impact of the new space age uh, to your influence? We love all space exploration and getting people involved in space, so I think the new space activities is just a way that the 
the scope is expanding and the involvement of people and organizations are expanding. And uh, that's why, for example, we were able to fly our own mission uh, as, as the first uh, kind of big mission science experiment funded entirely by individuals, entirely by 50,000 individuals. Uh, and uh, so I think it's, it's just another piece of the puzzle. So we're happy to have space agencies carrying out big missions to distant space, and we're happy to have uh, new space organizations getting involved and doing all sorts of neat stuff. Can, can you see an increase in, yeah, in members uh, over the past, last few years? Because at least from my, my yeah, subjective view, I've seen an increase in the interest in space over the past uh, yeah, couple of years where we've seen more vertical uh, landings and launches from SpaceX and Blue Origin, and it has uh, gotten more traction in the press. Have you seen also an increase in uh, membership? Uh, to some extent, but what we've really seen is an increase in people doing things like coming to our website and listening to Planetary Radio and getting involved and and people getting involved in other ways, including donating to our projects. And there's no, there's no question, you know, you look at a project like LightSail, and that just electrified millions of people who followed that project. And, you know, some of them followed up by becoming members and donors to uh, to the society. And, you know, we have a lot of other projects that we, we think are, are, are almost as exciting as LightSail. It's hard to be putting your own sun-driven uh, spacecraft in orbit around the Earth. Yeah. And um, yeah. I mean, it's uh, it's interesting that uh, it's actually based on on a CubeSat architecture. Um, and so, uh, would you also agree that uh, like the new space age, the standardization is also uh, helping in uh, bringing those um, uh, yeah solar missions uh, a bit forward, or like also maybe deep space missions in the future? Because right now, of course, low Earth orbit is the first um, uh, yeah, location where the benefits are. But uh, what do you think about deep space missions? And interplanetary missions. Yeah, the standardization, including, of course, CubeSat standards, have done a, done an awful lot to move forward participation of broader groups and student groups and universities and the planetary society. I mean, we couldn't have flown light sail the way we did without that uh, those types of uh, activities. And we're now just at the point where. The CubeSats and other and other standards are able to start doing interplanetary missions. So Marco, that went flying past Mars as a communications relay test, was based on a CubeSat architecture. It was the first one to do that. Really, a lot of the motivation, although we're flying in Earth orbit because that's what we could do, uh, right. and Ford, the whole point of a solar sail is to take you in interplanetary space. So we see our mission as demonstrating that you can use solar sailing in a CubeSat architecture. And in fact, that's exactly what NASA is going to do with the near-Earth asteroid scout mission that will launch on the first uh, launch of the SLS rocket, where they're taking a, a twice as large, so two loaves of bread-sized uh, spacecraft, and going to fly by an asteroid. Yeah, and I think that's the perfect segue. But before I, I, I take this opportunity, I just wanted to say, I think also one one hypothesis of mine is that we now see all this mega constellation in Leo, but which come with some problems, of course, when we look at um, astronomy. But 
what I think is would also will also come with these mega constellations is just a, an incredible decrease in cost for standard space components also in the uh, in the small set small set segments, which again will then enable really building satellites which are cheaper and maybe a little bit bigger than a CubeSat. But Bruce, uh, you already um, spoke a lot and we already mentioned LightSail a lot. So I think it's now perfect that you already said um, mentioned LightSail in your in your in your just in your last comment. So you are the chief scientist um, officer at the Planetary Society. You're the light uh, sale pro program manager, and it's really cool that you're here on the podcast. But maybe for all the people out there which don't know what Project Light Sale is, and maybe what a light sale is, yeah, maybe you can explain uh, it to them. Sure. And uh, sorry if I spoiled the light sale surprise. <laughs> <laughs> so, light sale is a spacecraft. It's a solar sail. So, solar sails use the push of light. The momentum from photons as the way to push the spacecraft, and so it requires no fuel. It's it's analogous in that respect to a sailboat instead of a motorboat, but you're actually using this push of light that's pushing on all of us right now just a little tiny bit. But if you go into the vacuum of space or near vacuum, and you have a big shiny sail that reflects the light, and a little tiny spacecraft like the CubeSats we're talking about then you end up, that becomes a significant push and can uh, be used instead of rocket engines or other propulsion techniques in deep space. So the Planetary Society tried to fly the first solar sail mission in 2005, and that was a rocket failure. Uh, <laughs> we really have done a lot better recently. <laughs> yeah. So that... That didn't work, uh, and that was a much larger but much less efficient uh, beast of a solar sail spacecraft. And then we changed our view exactly because CubeSats were developing, and so we took up the, hey, could we demonstrate controlled solar sailing using just a CubeSat? Could we shove a big giant Mylar sail into a little tiny spacecraft, successfully deploy it, and control it? So we have a a spacecraft that's a, a 3U CubeSat, so about the size of a loaf of bread, and out of that we deployed a 32 square meter shiny Mylar sail, uh, so about the size of a boxing ring, and we've been flying that in lower wow. orbit since last um, June, and uh, we're able to fulfill our technical mission, which was demonstrate controlled solar sailing, that we were able to change the orbit just using the push of light, and now we've been, we're continuing to fly it and to learn more and more and to take pretty pictures and get the public excited. But I, again, I reiterate that this mission was entirely funded by individuals who were excited about uh, supporting and being involved with space exploration. Yeah, and I think uh, like the light sail, the idea was uh, uh, there since the very beginning of the Planetary Society, right? So uh, decades ago, also Carl Sagan, he talked about the light sail idea. And uh, so that it's uh, really cool now that uh, you're really realizing this. And I think you skipped another launch failure because like between um, the Cosmos 1 and uh, now uh, the, the light sail, there were also um, other projects uh, which where there was a launch failure in 2008. Uh, and then in 2011, finally, the NanoSail D2, where you also participated, could launch, right? Um, so were you already involved uh, in those projects? 
We were, yes, but not very much. Uh, so NanoSail and NanoSail D, which had the fail at launch failure, NanoSail D2 were NASA demonstration, deployment demonstrations. So they weren't trying to fly a controlled solar sailing mission. They were trying to take a CubeSat and deploy a sail in orbit. Uh, they did, they did do that. And, uh, that, that was something their design and their plans for that mission were key to inspiring what we did. So we definitely piggybacked on top of their concept, but then added all, all sorts of components and a larger sail and all the things you need to actually do solar sailing. So we're involved with that. I also would be remiss if I didn't mention, uh, in between Cosmos One and us flying light sail, the Japanese, uh, flew Icaros, which became the first solar sail mission, and they were dropped off on the way to uh, an interplanetary space. So they did a very impressive job flying a solar sail, uh, but I will note that it was much more massive, and with solar sailing, the whole, the, the acceleration you get is based upon the area of the sail divided by the mass of the spacecraft. So if you have a really big sail or a little spacecraft, you, you're more efficient. You accelerate more. So we actually, even though we're tiny, that's actually good. So we're actually about 10 times more efficient, more, have more acceleration than Icarus. Yeah. And I also I, want to say, in addition to being far more massive, Icarus was far more expensive than, than Lightsail. It was. Yeah. And they did, they did some impressive, um, technology demonstrations and, uh, and, did a or much fancier origami folding of the sail, which, which is true. <laughs> they had a really impressive <laughs> deployment where they did a spinning deployment. Yeah, and uh, I mean, and deployment yeah. in space is so hard. That's just something yeah. I wanted to say. Definitely, and space space is so, hard. So, yeah. so Sven and I, we are also co-founders co of uh, LiveView, which is an Earth observation startup, and we mainly use uh, data from Planet Labs, which is also three U cubes. Mm -hmm. That. And I, uh, when we visited them in the office, uh, or when we've seen like the first uh, satellites there, um, I was impressed that out of those uh, this three U cube set, um, like the solar panels come out. Uh, I was impressed by this, but 32 square meters. How does that work? So what kind of material is it? And um, also then in the future after the missions, what is the purpose? Um, what kind of missions do you want to uh, use it as propulsion system? Right. So it's. Uh our sail is basically mylar, so the same kind of thing you have in birthday balloons, <laughs> shiny birthday balloons, but thinner. So it's four and a half micron thick, and woven into it is uh, our threads that form a, a checkered pattern, and those are rip stops. So if you start, like with a balloon material, if you start a rip, it'll just keep ripping. Uh, and so it's got threads in it. So that if a rip starts for any reason, uh, it will stop. So it's basically a thin, shiny, uh, plastic drive material that is folded very, very carefully into, uh, four triangular panels. And those triangular panels are fill up about one and a half of the three U cubes out, a little more than one. Uh, and so it actually takes up a significant fraction of that three U. And then we have uh, specially designed booms that are made of a, a strange alloy called Elgeloy. And those actually, over about three minutes, pulled the tr 
four triangular segments out using the four booms, and that's how we deployed it out of the spacecraft. So they they took up room towards the, well, what I think of as the bottom of the spacecraft. There's no particular bottom or top. And then we've got about one U, one unit, one third of it left over for the electronics, the computer boards, the uh, magne magneto torquers that we use for orientation, and the batteries, etc. Yeah. It's, it's really, really impressive, especially if you think of it that you have all these booms and they all have to move uh, yeah. at the same speed at the same time so that the spacecraft doesn't get a spin and then uh, spins endlessly. So our university uh, um, and, and here in Berlin, we have quite a big uh, industry yeah. of small sets, uh, small cube, so cube set builders and small set builders. And some of them, university projects as well as companies, had the problem that they ended up in space and were just tumbling around for for the first few days if it if they were lucky and for the entire time the the space probe was in orbit if they were not so lucky but i i'm i'm really curious because of course spa, uh, planetary society is, is is big and has a lot of members but how was the organization so who built the light sail who operates the light sail and exactly sure. maybe you can tell us a little bit about that uh light sail has been 10 years, more than 10 years now in, in coming to fruition. So various organizations and people were involved with it. So original ideas for solar sailing in general, uh, came from our, our original founder and original executive director, Lou Friedman, who was involved with solar sail designs at JPL in the seventies. So he was involved in a core team of people. The original design and original build was done by a small company called Stellar Exploration. Uh, the, which is located in, in California in a small town called San Luis Obispo, but there, Cal Poly San Luis Obispo, the university there is one of the two along with Stanford who developed the CubeSat standard. And we still, we've worked with people at Cal Poly San Luis Obispo the entire time. And in fact, they run our ground stations and our ground station operations. Uh, right now. <laughs> so they're part of what is operating the mission. We also had Ecliptic Enterprises, which is based in Pasadena, California. Uh, they're well known for rocket cams. So a lot of the cool videos from rockets as they're going up that are on the rockets were built by them. They did integration and test, which was a long involved process with our strange things we had involved. And then uh, our we had uh, various other individuals involved. Right now, our project manager is Dave Spencer and mission manager who's at Purdue University in the U.S. And then uh, we have the Cal Poly component. We've got a group called Boreal Space that does, is tied to the attitude control and determination and, um, and the planetary society. So I'm heavily involved in the operations, particularly the camera. Uh, side of things. So I'm sure I've missed people over 10 years and with a small but very complex spacecraft. Uh, we've had a lot of groups involved. We've done testing at different facilities as well. I just want to add that as you probably have seen, yeah. you know, with the colleagues of yours at your university and others, um, it's so amazing to go to Cal Poly. Uh, as you know, I was there with Bruce and a bunch of other folks from the society when the sale was deployed. And, you know, you have undergraduates and graduate students uh, communicating with and controlling this um, uh, pioneering spacecraft, and it's just a, a tremendous thing to watch. And I just think of the you know the head start that uh, these folks are getting 
on their aerospace careers and um, and hopefully some of them in planetary science too. Yes, absolutely. Uh, when I joined university and I read through all the catalogs of the different universities, the university I still remember, which I didn't join, had like on their webpage here at this university you can be part of an operational uh, satellite campaign and I was super thrilled and I thought, well, it's in the Netherlands, this university, so I thought maybe I should join that university. Then I joined the Technical University of Berlin and figured out, well, uh, our university has the most satellite launches from a university in Europe, but they just don't market <laughs> it at all, which I think is a pity because that what is more futuristic than space flight than even like like things like uh, which which you do interplanetary um, space flight and preparation for that I think there's nothing by the way Germany's that. done a lot of great research as you may be aware on solar sails and they've come close to flying them but never quite gotten the uh, the funding uh, but they've done a lot of a lot of great work and I, I see them see their groups at the uh, Solar Sailing Conference that happens every couple of years. I also wanted to mention, because I skipped a mission that we had that, that actually wasn't on a failed rocket, uh, which was LightSail 1. We're flying LightSail 2 now. LightSail 1 flew in 2015 and was a, to a lower orbit, so we knew as soon as we deployed the sail, atmospheric drag would drag it down. But we flew it as a test mission with no intention of sailing, but just as a deployment test. So we did that, had a lot of issues, but got the deployment done and got what we wanted out of a test mission, which is we learned a whole lot of things to fix and test. And then we spent a lot of time testing and testing and testing on the ground with light cell too. And that was also a positive thing for me because I could use your data uh, from 2015 in my master thesis about um, the drag in low Earth orbit. Um, but uh, so... What I'm really interested yeah, in is... and um, we're still waiting for the royalty payments for that. <laughs> oh, yeah, okay. <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah, we're going to give you a lot of new members, uh, hopefully from, from Germany and Great. Europe. Uh, and we'll, we'll take uh, that. That's we good. love that. Great, yeah. So, um, what I'm interested in is also now to um, understand a bit. Um, so, of course, right now you're testing in low Earth orbit, in an um, orbit where there is uh, like that's um, aerodynamic drag so that you um, can really test the system. But um, like looking to the future, what do you think will be the most important application for the um, uh, light sail? Um, and for this application, what kind of speeds can you reach with the light sail? Of course, not in low Earth orbit, but for deep space missions. Right. Well, to me, the the most significant missions, I, I tend to look more near term, the next few years rather than decades off. So let me give you that answer first. Uh, solar sails are particularly good at a few things, and one of those things is uh, putting yourself or keeping yourself in so-called non-Keplerian orbits. So normally you just have gravity affecting and motion affecting your spacecraft, and you turn on your thrusters, and then you have something that, that changes. Well, a light sail, you don't have, or a light sail, a solar sail, you don't need fuel, but you can keep having a thrust at all times that allows you to go into orbits that you otherwise couldn't maintain so for example one of the most interesting applications to me is solar observing so uh, right now we have a number of spacecraft at the earth sun uh, lagrange 1 point l1 point which is kind of a gravitational balance point and they can get warning of solar storms that's on the order of tens of minutes before they hit the earth 
but you can actually and there's and there's one place where you can put those spacecraft about a million and a half kilometers towards the sun that it'll they'll stay there with a solar sail you can actually go closer to the sun and give yourself more warning because you can set up a balance point where which keeps you in a place you otherwise wouldn't be stable at. Uh, so that's one application. Another is going to multiple locations. So lots of asteroids, for example, because you can uh, you can keep flying without requiring fuel. And then eventually, the the vision is the lights that solar sails are the only the only thing that we have kind of now that you could get up to speeds that might be practical to go to other star systems. Um, you do that by accelerating using lasers, either on Earth or in space, high-powered lasers, and you, you get ramp up to really, really high speeds. And there are groups looking into that, uh, but I think that's that's a that's a much longer term. There's so many technological hurdles to solve for that, but that's farther off. And that's that's really really visionary. Um, and the interesting thing is that actually the technology is now in orbit, and you're testing it. So like. If you really think about um, uh, like deep space missions to another solar, solar system, we have something now. And uh, did you ever made a calculation if you would have equipped uh, the Voyager missions uh, with a light sail and uh, like lighting via laser where it would have been today instead of where it is right now? Because if not, you should really do that. <laughs> it would have been back in the solar system brought by V'ger, the... Uh... <laughs> that was for Matt. Obscure references to Thank Star you. Trek One movie. Yes, uh, live long and prosper. Uh, no, I'm sorry, we didn't do that calculation. It would be interesting. Again, it's it's dependent. Voyager is, uh, although we don't think of it as that huge, it's massive enough. You'd have to deploy a very very large sail and have very high powered lasers. So a lot of it would depend on your assumptions to go into scientist mode for just a moment. Great. <laughs> Um, so yeah, so Project Lightcell 2 is expected to continue until until the end of the year, if I'm correct. Yeah, we need um, we need Daniel you, to do a calculation to figure out the atmospheric drag and how long we'll we'll be up. But uh, we're we're dropping. We knew we would. We're even though we're at 720 kilometers altitude, there's still enough atmosphere that when you have a big sail and a small mass, it will drag you down eventually. Even with us trying to fight it with solar sailing. But yeah, it's something like the order of a year uh, before it re-enters the Earth's atmosphere. Sorry to interrupt. And Go that's ahead. also what I think is interesting, uh, no, no that uh, you still have a lot of challenges to uh, really uh, calculate uh, those orbits, right, based on the atmospheric track. Um, but also yeah. I don't want to uh, get too technical because uh, we also uh, will come closer to the end of the podcast. Um, uh, so, um, uh, yeah. Uh, I, I think the the solar the the, the light sail um, project is really really interesting. Um, and uh, Matt, uh, maybe uh, what do you think um, for you personally? What was the most exciting um, emission? Um, and what are you looking for um, in the future in the space industry? You mean across so, uh, all of space yeah, exploration, ahead, or 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 just to work that the planetary society has done? In general, in general, what's uh, exciting you? Yeah. Well, again, I'm old. I'm older than Bruce. Um, uh, <laughs> He's ancient. <laughs> so I was, you know, in front of my parents' black and white TV for Apollo 11. Uh, and, uh, uh, and in fact, with yeah. my father's Super 8 camera shooting film of Neil and Buzz stepping onto the moon. Um, hard to beat that. But, you know, first, and since then, 
Viking, Vikings 1 and 2, which were so far ahead of their time and so amazing in what they accomplished on the surface of Mars. Uh, for what's happening now or, or in the future, you know, stuff that's we can actually expect to happen, um, there's so much, and it is all stuff that the Planetary Society very much stands behind. Uh, Europa Clipper sending that orbiter out to Jupiter and Hopefully now, in just the last few days, more evidence that there are plumes maybe coming out of that moon that uh, the clipper can fly through and look for those big organic molecules that, you know, might or might not mean that something is crawling around in that ocean underneath the, the kilometers of ice. Um, but also the Dragonfly mission, which is coming together at uh, Johns Hopkins University Applied Physics Lab, I don't know anybody, including the NASA administrator when he was on our show a few weeks ago, who isn't absolutely <laughs> overwhelmed and thrilled by that mission. You know, sending a flying machine to this mysterious moon of Titan that it's only in the last few years we've really been able to see what's happening on its surface and see how Earth-like it is in spite of how cold it is. But certainly this summer, Perseverance. Uh, we are all looking forward to uh, the 2020 Mars rover. Uh, and the work that it's going to do, beginning that effort that Bruce was talking about of sample return, but also the, the terrific instruments that it's carrying there and that the European Rosalind Franklin uh, rover is going to be carrying when it launches. It's a shame that that's been delayed a couple of years, but thrilling that when it goes, it's going to have yes. that drill that will be able to go down meters under the surface, um, hopefully with more success than we've seen so far with the so-called uh, mole. Uh, on uh, on the current uh, mission that's up there. But um, that's, you know, since the good stuff may be a few meters underground, um, there's so much more to look forward to on Mars. There's just so much. I mean, as, as our colleague Emily says, this is a golden age of exploration, of planetary exploration. And there are just so many missions to point to and say, look at the great work that's happening uh, around the world and around our solar system. And as um, you can tell, we... We struggle with Matt and trying Definitely. to get him more enthusiastic about space. <laughs> so yeah, I'm Bruce. laid. I'm laid back right now. <laughs> so Bruce, what about you? Anything to add? What Matt said. No. <laughs> <laughs> what Matt said. Great. So yeah, I personally, I, because uh, Sven and I, uh, we we uh, didn't. So what I think is really interesting, and what uh, what I'm looking forward, and I think uh, Sven Sven also, because we didn't experience uh, the moon race in the past, is really like to 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 you know follow up the launches and also like see 4K videos of the moon and uh, uh, that's going to be exciting because you know all, all those conspiracy theorists and so on they just will uh, um, yeah lose arguments um, and uh, so I really look forward to that yeah yeah but Bruce exactly since we're coming to read to the end what are what what is maybe a highlight you're looking forward to uh, in terms of just public projects, but as well as a project from the Planetary Society, and maybe also as just some final words to you, something you want to share with like the New Space Vision audience. <laughs> sure. Uh, I'm looking forward to more LightSail 2. Uh, we <laughs> have meetings every day and figuring out what we're doing with it and trying to make solar sailing more efficient and trying to fix the innumerable things that come up when you're flying a complex spacecraft uh, and fixing them. But also as head of the, the imaging, I just keep trying to get fun pictures and exciting pictures. We do it for engineering uh, because we want to see how the, if what's happening with the sail 
but also we're trying to excite and involve the public. So I'm still excited about LightSail. I'm excited about our new Exoplanet project uh, with Deborah Fisher. And uh, I am wanting to share that. Uh, so, so maybe, maybe just uh, any, any. I think, I think the message which came already across during the entire podcast is that the planetary society is great and everyone should support and join it. But is there anything <laughs> else you you would like to say? Took the words I'd like out to of say our that mouth. what? I said he took the words out of our mouths. <laughs> uh, oh, I just like to say that this is. Um, It is an exciting time in space, and I'm I'm thrilled to see people like yourselves getting involved, getting people excited. Uh, there's so much going on, as Matt detailed some of it, but there's so much going on, including with the new space, with uh, student groups getting involved and in actually flying missions uh, with the constellations. There's just a lot going on, and part of it's because, on the one hand, we're getting these smaller standardized spacecraft, On the other hand, we're still flying big flagship, impressive missions coming out of the agencies uh, that, like the ones that Matt mentioned. So it's just a great time to, to be alive and to be hanging out with the space world. I think these are perfect words to end the podcast. Um, it's, it's a great time to be alive and really uh, be part of just this, this great space community. So thank you very much. Uh, Bruce and Matt, thank you. Thank you very much for taking the time. And uh, to all the listeners, hope that you enjoyed this episode and hope that you also tune in for the next one. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you, guys. Uh, Bruce, I'll see you on Planetary Radio. <laughs> I will sort of see you. I will certainly hear you. <laughs>